time for episode 227 of Monster Kid Radio, and we're opening up things with a song from the band Dinosaur Ghost. From their self-titled album, this is Mandar. And of course, the song appears with their permission on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm going to tell you where you can hear Dinosaur Ghost in person later on in this episode, and you're going to get to hear this song, Mandar, at the very end of the show. But that's all at the end. We've got a lot of good stuff in the middle of the show, and I'm talking about The Mummy. I love Mummy movies, and Nicholas Hatcher is back on the show to talk about the second film in the Universal Keras Mummy Cycle, talking about The Mummy's Tomb. From 1942, directed by Harold Young, featuring... Well, you know what? I think it's fair to call him one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Lon Chaney Jr. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about 1940s universal horror with Nicholas Hatcher. And, you know, I'm just eager to get right into that conversation. So, let's do it right after this. From the depths of hell comes The Devil's Messenger, starring the master of mystery Lon Chaney and Karen Cannon. If you leave my messenger, you'd have to go back. Up there. Oh, I can't. I won't go back. You'll deliver that to a Mr. Donald Powell. Don't be afraid of me. The Devil's Messenger delivers gifts from hell, turning man into a ravaging feast. I took a picture of that old farmhouse. There's nobody in the picture. You saw it. Was there anybody in it? No, there wasn't. Somebody has come out of that house, and they're coming toward me. Back from the dead, his lovely victim seeks revenge for her horrible death at the hands of a man driven mad by a gift from hell. Trapped in her icy tomb until the devil's messenger exposed her nakedness in her crystal prison. Now let's get down to here. She becomes the object of a scientist's lust. His consuming desire for her drives him to commit murder, to keep her for himself. Not since he received the apple have gifts inflicted such unnatural consequences. Tonight at midnight, you will be dead. Just how do you intend to kill me? I have no idea. I don't even know you. Crystal ball foreshadows Zoom. For it is the plaything of the devil, and only he can change the events it foresees. <laughs> you must see what the devil's messenger has in store for you. C3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. 
We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Honeydew. Podcast. Syndrome. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. The incredible two-headed transplant. Evil lurks in the head of man, twisting tortured brains to satisfy fiendish desires. Remember Frankenstein, Wolfman, and King Kong. In each case, a woman of incredible beauty soothed their raging passions. Now, a monster more terrifying in appearance, more diabolical in its deeds with two brains and two heads grafted on the body of a giant to create the Incredible two-headed transplant. A monster with two insane passions. One to kill, one to love. Twice as terrifying as any monster of fact or fiction. You must see the incredible two-headed transplant. It lives, it loves, it kills. Attracted by beauty it could not resist. The incredible two-headed transplant. The incredible two-headed transplant. In color, rated GP. It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in horror vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience, and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, horror vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in horror vision and color. Have you seen My Mummy? Are you My Mummy? <laughs> I love My Mummy. And it's time to talk about another Mummy movie with my man, Nicholas Hatcher, from The Vampire Over Hollywood and Psychotronic Celluloid. How's it going, sir? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me back. So since we've had you on, you've launched Psychotronic Celluloid, right? Yes, I have. With my good friend, Mark Penley, who I uh, coincidentally work with. And we kind of... Uh, struck up conversations when we met and realized that we both had a lot of film taste in common. His leaned a little more towards the arty art house kind of films and things like that, but I'm slowly turning him towards our rubber monsters and, uh, and everything. He has an interest. Yes. Yes. He has an interest. And so, uh, I love the vampire over Hollywood podcast. I love Lugosi, but, uh, we kind of wanted to get into some of the other different kinds of genre films out there. So that's what psychotronic celluloid is for. It's typically a double feature style type podcast. You bring a movie to the table. He brings a movie to the table and you both discuss. And a lot of times they're not related in any way whatsoever, which makes it even more fun. That's what makes it so fun and so unpredictable. Yeah. I like mixing the genres because in my opinion, genre films can be anything from a comedy from the 1940s to a exploitation film from the 80s. I mean, it's just so all-encompassing. We really try to have fun with it. We, we did notice that first few episodes, we were watching a lot of horror films and watching a lot of Asian films. 
And so we thought, okay, let's, let's try to break away from that a little bit. So we're going to start uh, incorporating some other kind of films into our podcast, but we're having a good time with it. Right on. And of course, Vampire Over Hollywood is one of my favorite podcasts because it's about one of my favorite subjects. So well, yeah, you. as long as you keep that. that going, man, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's going to continue. I'm, I'm really enjoying getting into all of the ghosties films, getting to talk about some of these lesser known films. This week will be talking about zombies on Broadway. So that's going to be kind of interesting. I kind of forgot how little Lugosi is actually in it, but the times he is in it is great because he gets to do comedy. And I love it when Lugosi gets the chance to do comedy because he was hilarious. He was. Yeah. And that's just something that people never realize is that he, I think early on in his career, he wanted to be, you know, the the dark romantic leading man, but Mm -hmm. there came a point where he realized that that just wasn't going to happen. So then he decided, well, you know, I'd love to do comedy. Uh, there's even an interview out there where a, a reporter asks him, you know, what, what he would like to do. And he says, comedy. That's all. I, I can do comedy. It's so much fun. I enjoy it. But he never got the chance except for three or four times, including this film. I know we're going way off track here, but I want to say yes. Lugosi, comedy. I think he's completely underrated that when he had the material, he knew what to do with it. As terrible as it is to get the theme song from the movie stuck in your head, My Son the (laughs) Vampire, he has some wonderful moments in that movie and shows, yes, he can do comedy, despite what the 1994 movie Ed Wood tells you. (laughs) That's one of those films that, yes, there's a little bit of that strange Mother Riley thing going on there, but if you can get past that, it's one of his best later films. It, it really yeah. is. And there's a whole lot going on. There's a robot in it. It's, I mean, yes. he, he plays. Yeah. It's just, what's better than putting a robot in a film? It's just, it's, it's awesome. With Lugosi. And with Lugosi, who gets to play a vampire. And, uh, it's one of my favorite later era films of his career. And once again, comedy, you know, mm-hmm. and we get a little bit of that too. in films like Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. That's, it's not really one of my favorites, but he does get to do some comedy in that. So yes. people don't realize Lugosi was an excellent actor and he did a lot of stage work early on in his career. And, uh, I think we talked about this a couple times back, but he, you know, he even played Jesus Christ. You know, <laughs> he, he did a lot. He had a wide range and, uh, the boogeyman thing kind of took over after a while, but I always enjoy getting to see Lugosi do something that is totally out of his regular wheelhouse. Indeed. Yes. People need to follow vampireoverhollywood.com for that. To hear about a mummy film, though, stay locked in <laughs> to this episode of Monster Kid Radio because Nicholas and I are going to talk about the 19, is it 1942 film? Yes, 1942. The Mummy's Tomb, starring another one of our favorites. Yes, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. The second of the Karis films. From the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror by the master of menace, Lon Chaney as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in The Mummy's Tomb. that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town. 
and it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. So Universal had a whole series of mummy films. The first mummy film with Boris Karloff is kind of a standalone. It has nothing to really do with any of these other movies. But in 1940, they launched a, a new series, a new franchise, I suppose you could say, with The Mummy's Hand. Yes. And a couple of years later, they revisited the characters, not just The Mummy, but some of the other characters as well. Yes. Um, in The Mummy's Tomb. Well, we say two years later, but... <laughs> 30 years later? <laughs> yeah. My biggest question, why did Ando have wait 30 years to exact his revenge? But we'll get into that. <laughs> well, you know, if you go and you look up The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Curse, all of these on Wikipedia or IMDb and check out the trivia, the timeline in all of these films is a little screwy. <laughs> it's it's almost like some sort of alternate reality or something. Yeah. If I understand it right, this film should technically take place in 1970. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know if the <laughs> I don't know if the writers or the producers or whoever just weren't paying attention or just didn't care. I, I just it it was there is not any sort of attempt to make this feel like it's set in the future. In fact, well they don't they don't go out and mention World War II, but they mention one of the main characters getting drafted in the film. So it's kind of a weird alternate reality kind of thing. It's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. I, I, I really think they just said 30 years later at the beginning of the film and then just forgot about it. Yeah. I felt like a number they just kind of picked. They wanted to have the characters age a little bit. So they just grabbed a number. And this is the issue we run into. And I've talked about this on 1951 Downplace a couple of times. Yeah. These movies, it's not like somebody sat at home and watched the Blu-ray of The Mummy's Hand before they ran out to watch The Mummy's Tomb in the theater. So, you know, it's not like you have to pay that close of attention to continuity, despite the fact you're going to pull a bunch of footage from the first film (laughs) and use it through the first 10 minutes of this one. Yeah. Uh you know, I gotta be honest, I, I think I would have rather preferred just another adventure with our heroes from the first film. Yes. But still, you know, relatively in their younger years, cause they were a really good team in the last film. And I, I really got in, I, I know we talked about this last time, I really got into the relationship between Banning and Babe. And they're just were really funny together. I, I, I liked what they were doing. They were a good team. I would have enjoyed another film like that kind of continued that rather than just saying 30 years later and then spoiler alert, killing everybody. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I don't know. Cause I, I just did. I really enjoyed that aspect of the mummy's hand. I agree with you 100%. I, I wish we had had more of the banning babe connection, even though both characters are in the mummy's tomb, they never spend any yeah. on screen time together. Yeah. It's unfortunate. There's a lot of strange things. Yeah. And, the Banning character is, is pretty much the same, except he's older. But Babe is, uh, <laughs> not only is he, is he older and nowhere near as funny as the last film, he also has a different name. <laughs> yes, he does. They changed <laughs> his last never, name on us. I don't know why. Never explained. Um, it was Jensen in the first film, mm-hmm. Babe Jensen. And in this one, it is Babe Hansen. Yes. So, <laughs> um, Kind of that always. I remember watching that in the uh, the first time I saw this film, and thinking, 
well, that was kind of weird. I just, I think, cause I think the first time I watched all the cars films, I watched them pretty much back to back to back, mm-hmm. which I recommend, but then I don't recommend because then they all start kind of coming together in your brain and you can't remember what's from what scenes from what. Yeah. Wallace Ford, who was an excellent, not only was he excellent comedic relief in the mummy's hand, he also was a, a kind of a, a badass a little bit. Yes, the, he was uh, in the last film. He really well, was. Especially in the last, he wasn't just comedic relief. He he took care of business. So uh, yeah, nice to have him back, but not really the same character in my opinion. There's a disconnect. There's a weird disconnect, and I don't know if it's the thirty years it, yeah, later or what happened there. But there's this odd kind of separating Banny and Babe. Just did not seem to have the same magic, and the woman's gone. Yeah, she's, she's Marta's she gone. Marta's passed away at this point, which is again is too bad because I really liked Banning and Marta together. Well, and I like the three of them together. Just I want another adventure with them. <laughs> yeah, I do too. It'd be it would have been interesting to see, and I don't know if they couldn't get that actress back. I don't know, which I find kind of strange because they have a picture of her in old age makeup or older age makeup, excuse me, but. I don't know. I would have enjoyed it a little more if she had been there, you know, just to kind of give her own opinion on, on the situation. I, I don't know. It was kind of that whole thing left me feeling a little, a little strange the second time around. And not necessarily in, the, in a good way. It was just off. Yeah. Yeah. It just didn't feel right. Probably the first thing that I noticed about this film was the music. <laughs> It's, it's the Wolfman. It's, yeah. you know, it's for, it's taken for previous films. And this, this was sort of the beginning of Universal, of a trend that Universal began doing in the forties, reusing a lot of this classic music that, you know, I associate the da, da, da with the Wolfman. That's, that's the Wolfman. You know, uh, and how I, does that go? <laughs> everybody knows yeah. if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know how dare you um, <laughs> it's uh but that's the wolfman you know it's just like the creature theme you know you associate that with the creature and and when you hear that in king kong versus godzilla you're just like what <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't sound right right and uh, that leaves me feeling a little a little strange as well and that's that doesn't stop with this film universal would continue to use these same scores over and over again throughout the 1940s. Yeah, they would recycle. It's a cost-cutting thing. You know, no, they, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you do what you got to do to save money, you know, make money, be profitable, that sort of thing. As yeah. a fan today where we've got CDs and MP3s and a live 365 channel playing this kind of music all the time, yeah, <laughs> you, you start to identify it and, and pick up on it. And the creature music specifically, I'm hyper aware of just because I've watched that one the most. And, but, yeah, and this, also because it's used so much. That's true. Yeah, you mentioned King Kong versus Godzilla. That was a moment of disconnect for me when I first saw that and heard. That. I was like, "What?" what? <laughs> Especially since you know Godzilla has his own iconic music, right? Nowhere to be heard in the American version of that film. So, oh well. Well, we do have one other actor coming back to this one from the previous film. Yes, we do. One of my personal favorites. You know that mm-hmm. George Zuko is back, although. I'm not sure how, <laughs> because Babe shot him at least three times at the end of the last film. And he rolled down some stairs, and he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, he is back, not for very long, 
but he is back for this film, mm-hmm. he, which he, you know I'm happy I'm happy about because yeah. any, any time to see see Zuko in a Universal film, it's something special. You can never have too much of Zuko ever. I I love what he does, and I've become more appreciative of his work after having spoken with you. <laughs> yes, you know, I mean, I knew I knew his work and I liked what he did, but after talking with you, I've started to appreciate even more what he brings to a film, and he is covered in some old man makeup in this one, but it's still him. Yes, and I think it's a pretty good scene. Yeah, I love his little speech and everything that he says before he passes on and gives his high priest of Karnak role to uh, Turhan Bay. And I just think it's really, uh, it's just another example of an actor who can come in and not saying the material is horrible, but somewhat rise above the material and make it something that's really, really intense. I I think if it had been anybody else, if they had made some sort of cost cutting measure and just decided to just bring in somebody else just to, you know, play it under the old age makeup, it, it wouldn't have had the same effect as it does with, with Zuko there. So I'm glad, even though it's just for about a scene and a half, he's, it's still him and he's returned. I like that he takes us just to the edge of being too much in terms of his arms shaking and being yeah. kind of off. It's, it's almost know. to the edge of being comical, but not yeah. quite. So he holds on to it just a moment. I like it a lot. His performance, it's just the one scene. It's a monologue and, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm glad it's there. And it, yeah. made, it made me happy that they, they uh, decided to bring him back because they easily couldn't have. They didn't have to bring him back, but they did. In fact, they didn't have to bring really any of these people back. And they did. And I, I'm glad that they did, even though in some cases like Wallace, it was underused. But we also have to talk about the new star of the series. Oh, we have to. We have to. Now, in the previous film, <laughs> Tom Tyler played the mummy, and we liked him. We, we both, I think, came I, I liked away from it thinking that he didn't get enough credit, that it's mm-hmm. unfortunate he doesn't get spoken of more. But compared to Lon Chaney, I think everybody's going to be in the shadow of the man. He's, he's one of the, the, in my opinion, the the triumvirate between mm-hmm. him and Arthur Lugosi for the 1930s and 40s horror. Cheney is one of my favorite actors, and mm-hmm. I, I think he's one of those actors, just like Lugosi, except I think Cheney got a little more of a chance to do different sorts of roles. He kind of had a, a mid-career renaissance doing things like the Defiant Ones and until kind of going back downhill again. But he's just one of those guys. He was in a of Mice and Men. You know, it's just, it's incredible some of the stuff that he got to do. But in the 1940s, he became the guy at Universal for horror. And it all started with Man-Made Monster going into the Wolfman. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've made it clear how I feel about the Wolfman. I just think it's a masterpiece. And uh, it wouldn't be possible without Lon Chaney Jr. The and man, uh, here, yeah. he's it's a little different now with, with these films. He didn't want to do these films. No, mostly due to the makeup. And, you know, I understand because he, he was an actor who thrived on sentiment and sort of being the downtrodden most, most of the time being sort of the downtrodden, you know, guy that you feel sorry for. It all kind of comes back from that Lenny from of mice and men kind of thing that he did so well. And he did that so well with Talbot because Talbot is the ultimate 
of the you know the the character you feel sorry for. He doesn't want to be a, a monster. He doesn't want to kill people. He want he just wants to end this reign of terror. And Karis, except for a little bit later on at the end of the film, is emotionless. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. But if somebody had came to me at the time and said, Lon Chaney is going to play Karis, I would have thought, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> because that's not really what he's known to do. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, he already did the Frankenstein monster in 1942 with a somewhat similar at times portrayal. Yeah. Somewhere. You know, he's the kind of guy that he has his own style. He has his own way of doing things. He's not our Karloff or Lugosi. He's a Cheney. And he, even though he's a bigger guy than his dad was, he's a, he acts with his body and he brings so much. And you yes. mentioned there's a sensitivity to what he does and to bury that in, you know, an awesome monster design. I mean, don't get me wrong. I yeah. love my mommy. Yeah. It really, I think didn't do him very many favors. He thrived in that in that sensitivity and that emotion mm-hmm. when you see Cheney as Talbot on screen it doesn't matter which film you're watching when you see him on screen you feel his pain and he did it so well and i think that's the reason why you know films like the wolfman and and some of the uh house of frankenstein house of dracula i think they're he's the he carries a lot of those films because you genuinely you genuinely care about Talbot Mm-hmm. And in this film, while you're absolutely correct, the makeup is is great. And honestly, I like the makeup more in this film than I did in the previous film. Oh, really? Yeah, I like the burned eye and uh, or the shut eye, or I'm not really sure how they explain that. But I like I liked the the <laughs> just the way it looked. But you can't tell it's him. I mean, you can't. You, you would never know that Cheney was under the makeup. He's he's buried and under that. And so I understand his his feeling towards this character that being said he still does a great job and there is a bit towards the end where he gets to show a little bit of emotion and at that point i thought okay he's shining through a little bit it's coming through just 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 a hair not not a lot but just a hair and i'm glad he got to do that now It'll be interesting to see as we go on to the next couple of films, how much he gets to do throughout those. I can't remember. Like I said, I watched them such a long time ago, so I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the end. I was going to mention that as well, is that as we get toward the end of the film, the final reels, he is doing more of what we know him for. Uh, I would say he's probably yes. most identifiable as Lon Chaney to me when he's fighting the fire. There's something about the way yeah, he moves yeah. and the way he's got his hands up and I don't even know if it was him or a stuntman, but this, that's when I thought, okay, yeah, that's Lon Chaney. It reminded me of Ghost of Frankenstein, you know, yes. things like that, where the movements, his kind of sudden, even Wolfman, like his just kind of sudden movements, what, you know, mm-hmm. reacting to the fire and everything. If it was a stuntman, that stuntman was doing a really good job <laughs> to, uh, to kind of copy Chaney's movements. Cause I, I agree with you on that one. Exactly. We've got a few other people in here. I want to talk briefly about Durhan Bay. Yes, I don't, Bay. I don't know much about him, actually. Do you know much about Turhan Bay? The only thing I know about him, and I can't remember where I I got this information. I, I know, I think I read it in a book somewhere. I don't know if he came from some sort of wealthy family or something, or I, I know that he was kind of groomed to be, to take over as like a huge leading man. Uh, he's a good looking guy. And mm-hmm. so he kind of had, I think producers were going to try to bring him over and, and make him, this really like a big 
sort of leading man to, you know, swoon the ladies and everything. I don't really think that happened, but he did do a couple interesting films for us monster kids. Obviously he was in the mad ghoul, which I love, which is a pretty much a kind of sort of remake slash rip off of cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. He's in the climax with Karloff, which is kind of sort of sequel to the Phantom of the Opera, the 1942 <laughs> film, or at least it was, it was originally going to be a sequel. And then he was also in a public domain film titled the amazing Mr. X. I don't know if you've seen that or not. That's kind of a noirish kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's put on all of the, the, you know, the 50 movie box sets and, mm-hmm. and everything from what I remember, it does have a few creepy moments in it, but that's really what, what I know him from. You know, he does have this leading man striking kind of cut to him. He looks like yeah. somebody who could carry a romantic style type lead or a swashbuckling type lead. I, yeah, what he's doing here, I have no idea. I, <laughs> was he a universal contract player or what? I don't know. But right, first, he's he's going to be a high priest, and that's all he cares about, and that's all he wants to do. And sometime along the film, he falls in love with Isabel. And just decides, okay, now he's going to do that instead. And his character's a little confusing. Isn't that how it always is, though, in these mummy movies? There's always a woman that the mummy and or the high priest falls in love with. Yeah, Yeah. I I don't know. I kind of believe, I kind of believed it a little more when Andoheb did it because he just seemed to have a little bit more fiery passion and Turhan Bey seems just kind of, he kind of just seems to be there. Right. (laughs) And he's like, well, I guess I have to do this and I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I felt it more with Zuko, but I mean, that could just be my bias because I love Zuko, mm-hmm. but I think, I think Bay did a good job. He may be a little miscast. He was kind of looked at to be sort of an exotic looking man. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and so he was kind of designated to those kind of roles and, you know, he does kind of have a few somewhat European features and so they kind of uh, cast him in sort of more exotic roles. So I'm, I'm thinking that's probably how he, how he landed this role. Yeah, so. I mean he was Austrian, so he does have like yeah. a European look. I, I don't know if I'd go Austria equals Egypt, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, those kind of things just didn't matter back then. This so. is true. This is true. But then George Zuko isn't necessarily Egyptian either. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. Whatever works. Do what you got to do. Well, I do like him in this one, but I think compared to Zuko, it's unfortunate. As much as I love the Zuko scene and the monologue and the passing of the torch from one bad guy to another, putting those two guys together, unfortunately, makes you realize that one of them is not George Zuko. I'm not going to lie. I I think I enjoyed a lot more about The Mummy's Hand than I did about The Mummy's Tomb. But that being said, you know, we get to relive a lot of that with all the stock footage at the beginning. <laughs> right. So one thing we talked about with The Mummy's Hand is that it felt like a serial. And that was probably intentional. The director of that film had done a lot of serials. There's a lot of places you could break that movie down. You could do a fan edit of The Mummy's Hand, put it yes. on YouTube in 10-minute chunks as The Mummy's Hand, the serial. Coming next week on The Mummy's Hand, you know, you could do that. Absolutely. Which is something that while The Mummy's Tomb doesn't feel this way – throughout the film, it does feel like a serial at the very beginning because it's showing us all these flashbacks mm-hmm. and all these slight tweaks to the story to justify what happened, like Zuko surviving. Yeah, that was something that happened a lot in in serials. I kind of call it the quintessential recap episode 
this they may not be with all cereals, but it seems like every cereal I've ever seen, you know, either halfway through or two thirds of the way through, they have a scene where everybody just decides to remember everything that happened for the past right. seven, seven or eight episodes. And I understand why they do that because you know you would go to the theater every every Saturday or whenever they would do these new episodes of cereals, and after seven or eight weeks, things probably start getting a little fuzzy. In terms of, you know, what, what happened in episode one or what happened in episode two. So I, I understand that. And to be fair, it had been two years, I believe, since the last mummy film. 30 years. Didn't we say 30 years? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Once again, why did Ando have wait so long? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, it is a different director, so it does have a different vibe. The director it is does. a guy by the name of Harold Young. And this, I believe, was the first time he worked with Cheney, not the last, because he also directed The Frozen Ghost, one of the Inner Sanctum films, which I adore. I love the Inner Sanctum movies. They all just have such a weird flavor that I just I enjoy them a lot. You talk about Cheney having some opportunities to do some subtle or maybe even not so subtle, overly sensitive type roles. Yeah. I mean, he's the leading man in this. He's almost he's trying to do that dashing, you know, Clark Gable kind of thing. But all this spooky stuff is happening around him. And he's Lon Cheney. So, of course, it does. And (laughs) I mean, they're great films. And one of these days I'm going to talk about him here on the show. I can't wait to hear about those because I I feel like they are films that are never talked about. Uh, I love, uh, especially Weird Woman. I mean, they're just. That's my favorite of them. Yeah, just so cool. I, I love the opening sequence that, that is always in them, how creepy that is. And I, I just, I, and the fact that Cheney gets to be in all of them and gets to do something different every time is something mm-hmm. that I just, I, I relish that. And that's just another example of how, you know, Cheney was the horror guy for Universal in the forties and he made a lot of, of horror films for these people. Agreed. Thankfully, we have a whole other set of the Inner Sanctum films to enjoy mm-hmm. as well. But other than that, it's not like Harold Young did a lot of horror or monster movies. It seems like he was kind of a utilitarian director, did whatever he could mm-hmm. or was given. I mean, he did some work for Disney, for crying out loud. Oh, wow. He, he directed some of the live-action sequences from The Three Caballeros. Oh, cool. cool. And, and did one of their TV shows. But, you know, he, he was kind of all over the place, so... How he ended up with the role or of director, how he landed this gig, I have no idea. I don't know much about him yeah. beyond what we as Monster Kids know about him. So I honestly never heard of him until we uh, are revisiting this right now. So I, I, I don't have any previous experience with him director. I mean, we kind of have some of these directors who work on a few films like Kenton doing uh, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and uh, obviously James Whale, but... We also every once in a while get directors like Harold Young who just really, they weren't known for, for these kind of films. They just did what they were told. And that being said, this film is very much, I would consider this more on the B scale of universal horror. And so I think with a lot of the B films that they kind of had that they just really, I don't know if they didn't care or if they were just like, okay, let's pop a new mummy movie out. I, I think The Mummy's Hand was a pretty big success, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they made so two I, more after this, so it's it's a successful series. So they think, okay, well, let's let's crank another one out. Mm-hmm. So they may get a a Harold Young or somebody like that to just you know let's get this movie done, let's get it done efficiently, you know. Except for the the strange stock footage and things that they put in there, I think the pacing's pretty good. The movie moves along pretty fast. It's only an hour. <laughs> Without the stock footage, it would would not have been a feature. 
<laughs> it wouldn't have been a feature-length <laughs> really like film have. because you would have lost a good 10 to 15 minutes. But it is a pretty short film. It yeah. does move pretty quickly. The pacing is solid. Uh, it's a little formulaic once you start killing people. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's got some pretty good pacing. I agree with you. I think the first one, I think, is a little bit better. It's just it does a little more for me. I think I loved, you know, we talked about it when we talked about the film, but I love the the action adventure side of it. The relationship between Banning and Babe, it just, and Tom Tyler did a great job, and of course Zuko, and it was a little more exciting than this film. It felt more like an ensemble picture with all these different characters. They all had their own individual stories that I felt like continued off screen. That even if the camera wasn't there, their characters were off doing something. In yeah. this one, I don't necessarily believe that was the case. I feel like they were just kind of waiting around for the director to say action, and then they would do their thing, and the scene was over, and moving on. They didn't feel like fully realized characters to me. And I don't know if that's the script. I don't know if that was the direction. I'm not sure where that came from. It it kind of suffers from a little bit of a... uh, just Just a little bit of... Okay... I know the plot is moving along pretty fast, but let's let's change it up a little bit. You know, let's not just go, okay, Karis kill, Karis kills, newspaper headline. <laughs> you know, okay, Karis right. kill again. You know, and th- there's a lot of newspaper headlines in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed that. I, I thought, this is like the fourth or fifth newspaper headline, isn't it? <laughs> it? It definitely became a storytelling device. It wasn't just yeah. <laughs> once I, or I twice. It was, the- yeah. I mean, even ends with that, so. Yeah, I know. I, I don't mind it a couple times, but there, after the the fifth or sixth time, I thought, man, that's uh, that's happening a lot. Yeah. Of course, big thanks to Nicholas Hatcher for taking the time to appear on Monster Kid Radio to talk about all things Karis. He and I are both huge fans of the Mummy movies, and. In the next episode, here in a couple of days, he and I are going to break down the plot and talk a little bit more in depth about the story of The Mummy's Tomb. It will be spoilery, so if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want us to ruin it for you, go check it out. And then come back here in a couple of days for more action, more hot mummy action with Nicholas Hatcher. In November, Portland will be host to the very first annual Living Dead Horror Convention happening November 13th through the 15th at the Oregon Convention Center. I'm going to be there, and I can't wait. Now, they are doing their best to bring in a number of different types of horror and celebrity personalities. We're talking about some modern stuff. We're talking about some cult-like stuff. We got some Friday the 13th. We got a little bit of Twin Peaks. We got some people from Texas Chainsaw. We got Lisa Marie. We've got Barbara Steele. And just announced... Butch Patrick and Pat Priest. That's right. Eddie Munster and Marilyn Munster will be here in Portland, Oregon at the Living Dead Horror Convention. I knew the Living Dead Horror Convention would not let a monster kid like me down. Bringing in Barbara Steele, that's gold. Bringing in the kids from the Munsters, that's gravy. I'm also involved in some of the behind-the-scenes planning of the convention, and I am meeting with the people in charge of putting together the panels this weekend. So hopefully I can bring you some more news about the upcoming schedule of the Living Dead Horror Convention. Stay tuned here to Monster Kid Radio for more information about that, or go over to livingdeadcon.com to keep caught up with all things happening about this convention happening in mid November. Man, Halloween's just going to be one extended holiday for me this year. It's going to be great. 
Doesn't it seem strange for the doctor to bury his wife in his laboratory? Yes, but you must admit the good doctor's a little strange himself, isn't he? The good doctor is more than a little strange. He's a lot loony. And he gets more so with every cute corpse he chalks up. And every beautiful bride he boxes in. Scary ghosts, black cats, secret doors. What more do you want? Well, there is more. Even more horrible hanky-panky than you can imagine in the horrible Dr. Hitchcock. In blood red, ghost green, turn blue with cold fright, color. The She-Beast. Deadlier than Dracula. Wilder than the werewolf. More frightening than Frankenstein. Another victim of a strange revenge. Wreaked on the innocent from beyond the grave. Hurling a town into a terrifying struggle against the powers of darkness. The witch Verdella, known to be dead for centuries, comes to blood-chilling life before disbelieving eyes. Unleashing all manner of monstrous evil in the town in which she was supposed to have breathed her last. You'll see a creature of the damned damning the living to destruction when you ceased. Starring Barbara Steele, Mel Wells, and co-starring John Carlson. You'll see a monster in human form defy her doom as the townspeople drag her from her cave to the witch's dunking chair. You know, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, big thanks to Nicholas Hatcher for being part of the show this week. I can't wait to bring part two of our conversation about the mummy's tomb to the show. So that's coming here in a couple of days. And like I said, we're going to get spoilery. So go out and watch the movie, then come right back here for more conversation with Nicholas. If you need more Nicholas in your ears before that happens, so check out his other podcasts, Vampire Over Hollywood and Psychotronic Celluloid. You can follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net to get to those podcasts. And since we're talking about monsterkidradio.net, I want to direct your attention over there because that's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Over here, you will find show notes to every single episode of Monster Kid Radio. You'll find links to every song that's appeared here on the show by clicking on the songs tab. You're going to find a list of every band, every album, every song, and every episode they appeared in. You know, if you buy any of those albums, it would be great if you told them that Monster Kid Radio sent you over there. We also have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show a little bit that way. Every little bit helps. And once we get to that second milestone, we'll do another How to Make a Monster Kid Radio episode like we did last week. And by the way, Jason, thanks for the private comments you sent me about that episode. It means a lot. Thank you. Jason emailed me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. The email address is on our website, as is our voicemail line. It's 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795. Ready? M-K-R, as in Monster Kid Radio. You knew that. I didn't have to spell it out for you. Anyway, if you have anything that you want to say about anything that you've heard on any episode of the podcast, well, you know how to get a hold of me. 
If you have a topic you want to bring up or suggestions about future topics on the show, well, you can do it that way too. Or you can head over to Facebook. We have a link to our Facebook group where you can get involved in conversations with other Facebook users, Monster Kid Radio listeners. That's where the conversations are happening, and that's where the poll is happening. We've got a monthly Facebook poll going on over there as well. Well, maybe every month and a half I refresh it. But there's a poll. And if you're on Facebook, go ahead and get involved. Of course, we have a Facebook page as well. If you're a Facebook user, feel free to give us a like. Joe DeMiro, the director of Tales of Dracula, has a dream. He wants Monster Kid Radio to get to 1,000 likes. Can we do it? Well, with your help, I think we can. Of course, if you're an iTunes user, we'd appreciate a review. We appreciate you retweeting and sharing and forwarding on information about our podcast. Thank you for everybody's support. Thank you for listening to the show and thanks for sticking around to the very end where you can hear that song by dinosaur ghost mandar now i don't know what's on the set list but i do know that dinosaur ghost is playing live on september 2nd in hollywood they're going to be playing at the harvard and stone it's at 5221 harvard boulevard and they're going to be playing with the bands the electric west and facts on file the evening is hosted by charlie clark it's a free event for 21 and over only. Doors open at 9 p.m. If you head out that way and you show up, I'd like to hear how it went. And again, as always, tell them that you heard about it here on Monster Kid Radio. Speaking of which, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Mandar. That belongs to Dinosaur Ghost. It's on their self-titled album, Dinosaur Ghost. You can find them at dinosaurghost.bandcamp.com. Or just follow the link in the show notes. Hope you enjoy the song, and I'll talk to everybody here in a couple of days for more conversation about The Mummy's Tomb. (laughs) 